Hi everyone, I'm Anya Parampil and this is Redlines. The largest strike in human history is currently underway in India as hundreds of thousands of farmers protest new laws enacted by the country's parliament. To discuss the details of the movement, I'm joined now by Prasant Radhakrishnan. He's a New Delhi-based journalist with newsclick.in, as well as the People's Dispatch, and co-host of the weekly program, Give the People What They Want. Welcome to Redlines, Prasant. Thank you so much, Anya. Let's start by discussing how all of this began. What exactly are the laws farmers in India are protesting, and what is the ultimate goal of these demonstrations? Right. So uh, just to give a bit of context, India has been facing a massive agrarian crisis for decades now. This is not uh, something new. This is not just a protest that sprung out of nowhere. So there's this context of decades of the crisis in the agrarian sector. 500,000 farmers have committed suicide. Prices have crashed. State support has dwindled. There's been an increasing focus on the corporatization of agriculture, the privatization of the space. And all this has brought farmers to the brink in many, many parts of India. And like I said, this is not a new development per se. What we, when we look at these three laws in specific, what we see again is an agenda over a, vast, a long period of time, especially by the Narendra Modi government, which is clearly a very far right wing government, very pro corporate government. And that has been to actually increase the role that corporates play in agriculture. So these three laws were actually brought in this context. And I think uh, the well-known journalist P. Sainath, among others, has pointed out that it, these laws were not brought in isolation. They were brought during the pandemic. And they were brought almost at the same time as laws affecting the rights of workers as well. So these laws were kind of rammed through parliament in the month of September. Before that, they were issued as ordinances where you don't have to pass into parliament in June. And in September, when parliament met, they were just rammed through. Now let's take a look at the three laws that are basically, I'll have to go into a bit of detail on the way agriculture works uh, in India to kind of explain the exact issue that's here. So there is a system whereby government agencies procure crops from farmers and there is a price at which these crops are procured. It's called the minimum support price. Now this trading takes place at markets which are run by government run agencies, right? So this is a very, uh, time-honored system that was brought in to ensure that farmers are not cheated by traders, that they're not, you know, pressurized by middlemen and so basically they're forced to sell their crop at a low price. So this was meant to avoid that, right? So we have the system where there's a government sanctioned price for 23 crops. Now, over the years, what has happened is that this system has been horribly weakened. Everyone agrees that this system is still, there are a lot of problems in this, nobody's denying that. But what the government did with one of the laws was to basically allow the space for markets to be created outside this government-run system. So now what the farmers are really afraid of, one of the key aspects they're afraid of is that this will become a site for private traders to come and basically run the complete uh, sector, so to speak. So whereby, you know, the, the, these uh, private markets basically might first even offer good prices to farmers, but then what happens is that uh, over time, the government-run markets collapse, and then they're at the mercy of the private traders. So that's law number one. So this is something that basically can drastically affect the prices they get for their produce. Now, law number two is a 
is an amendment which basically takes some crops out of the list of what is called the essential commodities. So what this means is there's a possibility for greater hoarding, there's a possibility for greater, again, corporate control. So uh, the organizations, for this reason, the fact that the corporates are the ones which have the ability to store these crops for longer, right? So that's law, that's the second law. And the third law basically provides a huge fillip to what is called contract farming, where once again, the farmers will be, will sign a contract with most likely a big company where they'll be told what to plant, what are the conditions, et cetera, et cetera. Again, initially they might benefit, but what happens is that it's subject to global market changes. You know, other corporates can, there is a lot of legalese, which means that if the corporates decide to pay them less, or if they say the quality is not that good, what basically happens is that the farmers again might be left in the lurch. So we have these three laws, each of which affects a different part in some senses of the process, but are all connected by one single fact that this is these laws are simultaneously likely to ensure the entry of some of the biggest corporates in India, say the Mukesh Ambani group, Mukesh Ambani is the richest man in India, or Gautam Adani, who's the second richest man in India. So it's likely to enable these big corporates to enter the agriculture sector in a very large way and completely dominate that sector and push small farmers, especially, or even big farmers for that matter, completely into a corner. So this is actually the lines on which this mobilization has taken place. Now, the mobilization got, I mean, it came into popular imagination in November, in November, late November, the farmers marched to Delhi from the neighboring states. They occupied the borders. They've been sitting there, tens of thousands of farmers for nearly 70 days now. But these protests had started much before. So they had started when these laws were first conceived, when they were designed, when they were passed as ordinances, when they were passed in parliament, June, August, September, huge protests had taken place across the country. And these culminated in this set of series of protests in November, which has been one continuous, uh, say, round from November 26th onwards to today, where the protesters are still camped on the outskirts of New Delhi. You mentioned the occupation, but can you describe some of the tactics farmers are using to carry out this strike? I've read about them setting up entire self-sustaining camps around New Delhi. What exactly is the situation where you are? Right. So uh, it's uh, quite an interesting mobilization, so to speak. Uh, for instance, NewsClick has been continuously covering these protests uh, from the ground, both in depth and over a wide range of protest sites. And one of the interesting thing, things our reporters have talked about across the sites is that the farmers came very prepared. And now this was evident from November 26th when they set out from their respective regions. And they were they were they were they realized that they are going to be here for quite some time because they knew that this government is really not likely to you know withdraw these laws which clearly are to the benefit of the corporates. So from day one they came with water supplies, they came with food supplies, they came with you know, logistically, mentally uh, prepared to sit for a very long time. And this is, of course, this season is winter in Delhi. So November, December, very harsh cold. Early January, for that matter, there were very, there were rains. It was quite bitterly cold. Uh, you know, really struggled to even, uh, even inside your house, so to sit inside your house. Whereas these people were sitting on the outskirts. They had brought supplies for, uh, you know, for cooking. They had set up community kitchens. They have even their own media infrastructure. There's a newspaper, there are social media accounts which are running. There's a lot of effort being made to ensure that 
you know, the senior citizens, the older people, children, women, those who are not so well, all of them, you know, they have, there's their medical centers as well. And there's been an outpouring of solidarity also from the residents of Delhi and neighboring areas, both in depth and was try to help out in various ways. So this is actually quite a unique occupation because it's been described as probably one of the uh, most historic farmers' agitations in India's history itself. And you've seen quite a few of them actually. So this has been really historic in the sense that it's been over 70 days. And recently the farmers were even saying that, you know, we are prepared to sit here till October because clearly the government is not willing to listen beyond a point. Talks have happened. There's been an effort at demonizing the farm. It came with, you know, logistically, but, you know, we are going to be steadfast. We are going to be sitting here peacefully, pushing our demands and making sure that the government is forced to acknowledge us. And that kind of preparedness and organization doesn't just happen accidentally. So I'm wondering what kind of organization is responsible for this scale of demonstration. How is it possible that we're now seeing what's described as the largest strike in human history? Right. So uh, there are a couple of things I would say that, uh, especially in the states around uh, in the states around Delhi, that's Punjab and Haryana. There are a lot of a lot of organizations, varied ideological convictions. Actually, uh, there are a number of organizations under, for instance, the banner of the Bharatiya Kisan Union or the Indian Farmers Union, which is uh, there are various say, groups even under that banner. So there are multiple organizations. There's something called the All India Kisan Sangharsh Coordination Committee, which translates to the All India Farmers Struggle Coordination Committee. And now that is a collection of hundreds of organizations representing farmers' interests across India. There is, for instance, among uh, among that is also the All India Kisan Sabha, which is the left-wing All India Farmers Association, which has been in the forefront of farmers' agitations across the country. And also, I would also like to point out two things here. One is that you know, I mentioned that there are some demands of the farmers which go even beyond these three laws. So these have been going on for years. There have been historic marches for instance, the, uh, the march in the state in Maharashtra, which really shook the conscience of the country, so uh, to speak. And say there have been gatherings where workers and farmers have protested in front of an inner parliament in Delhi with similar demands that they get remunerative prices, that farm loans be waived. So there's actually been a groundswell of farmers organizing in the country over the past many years, especially after Narendra Modi came to power, even before that. Especially after that, there's been a groundswell of organizing because this government's pro-corporate policies have been at a completely different level altogether considering its scope and extent. So there's this wide network of organizations, huge amount of solidarity from student groups, youth groups, uh, leftist organizations, opposition political parties, of course. But also that this is, uh, say, a very, very strong farmer-led agitation and that has been one of the core reasons, and there's a lot of awareness about these issues. It's not that, you know, this is just, hey, let's go to Delhi. The people, when you talk to them, when you listen to their bites on video, the thing that comes out is people are just very clear, you know, this is what the impact of the policies is going to be. You know, these corporates, these are the corporates who are going to benefit, and this is why we are here. So clearly a very powerful, uh, and this is also, again, one last point maybe on this, one thing the government has been trying to do is to paint this as a protest of just a few states, right? So basically, the attempt has been made to say that this is just a protest in the states around Delhi, 
Whereas clearly that's not the case. For instance, on February 6th, there was a children, women, those who held across the country in solidarity with these issues by farmers' organizations. So many states taking place, uh, these kind of agitations taking place all over. So uh, clearly this is a really pan-India issue which the government would like us to sort of, uh, would like people to forget both inside India and abroad. So it, there's a lot of organization taking place, yes. And how has the government responded to these protests? Have there been consequences for individuals participating or a state crackdown? And recently the farmers were even saying this, uh, I mean, it's symbolic of basically a lot of what uh, this government stands for and its approach to issues. Incidentally, we're, we're talking today that is on Monday. The Prime Minister addressed Parliament as part of one of the regular parliamentary procedures. There's a President's address and there's a response to that. So the Prime Minister took part in the debate and he made some amazing statements. One of them, one of the statements was that uh, he said that there's a category called uh, what do you call professional agitators, especially in the states around. Uh, and he said he talked about how they're like parasites, you know, feeding on these protest sites. He said there is something called foreign destructive ideology for because it's like FDI, which is foreign direct investment. And he said there's something else called foreign destructive ideology. So this is in Parliament, the uh, home of democracy, as it's widely celebrated. You have a prime minister, huge protests going on, and his, you know, what he says is. Uh, he's talking about professional agitation, professionals, so to speak. So, <clears throat> representing farmers' interests across India, there is, for instance, they have refused to withdraw the bills, despite the farmers being clear that this is their demand. They have proposed compromises in the sense that they have proposed amendments to some of the provisions. But the farmers are very clear that they know that what the government is probably trying to do is get them to just go somehow. And then this discussion again goes for a toss, so to speak. So the government has even proposed staying the imposition of the laws for a particular period of time. There have been gatherings where workers and farmers are not, are not convinced by these offers because uh, earlier the government had promised much better things to them in terms of remunerative prices. So they're very clear that they want farmers organizing. So this is one part, the official discussions between the farmers and the farmers' organizations and the government. On the other hand, the government has also acted in, uh, there's nothing, no other way to describe it as a very sharp crackdown of dissent. So let's take the various stages. In the, in the beginning, groups, youth groups, uh, leftist government went around saying that the most uh, well-known phrase of abuse in India and the right wing is anti-national. So there was a usual group of people on, online, the, BJ, the ruling BJP's IT cell, so to speak, online warriors calling the farmers anti-nationals. They were calling the farmers terrorists. You know, there was a lot of discussion about how all these protests were foreign funded. So that was, of course, there was one stage that went, that went on for quite a long time. Continues today, there's a lot of, you know, abuse. Clearly a very powerful uh, entry on these lines. And just to say, this is nothing new. Last year, exactly at this time, uh, a huge cross-section of society was protesting what is called a Citizenship Amendment Act, which would have brought a religious component to citizenship, especially for those, for instance, on February 6th. So there was a huge protest across religious social lines in many parts of the country. Exactly the same tactics were deployed. The protests, of course, uh, ended in a, uh, they ended in a way, unfortunately, almost there was massive religious, uh, would like people to forget both God and Muslims were killed, properties. So it was destroyed. But yes, so the very same techniques 
are being used today also the kind of provocative language being used against them on january 26 there was a rally a tractor rally in delhi by the farmers now a section of farmers went outside the routes that had been earlier been fixed they went towards the center of the city they uh, stormed what is called the red fort which is an iconic monument and this was used by the government now there are reports that these people did so because there were provocateurs among even inside the protest camps trying to you know get the farmers to break the rules the farmers organizations in fact have actually condemned that violence but this was used as an excuse by the government on the 28th of january basically what happened was that they tried to evict one of the big protest sites <clears throat> called the it's called the gazipur border and that uh, that that backfired because there was a huge wave of and he said there's something else called foreign destruction area there were fresh mobilizations right now internet connections are cut off at uh, all the key protest sites barricades have been built it's it's almost like a war zone many leaders have compared the barricading on the outskirts of delhi to what happens on the borders with say what would be an enemy country right so that is the kind of security apparatus that has been constructed against people who are just demanding uh, that the government withdraw a law now that's one that's another phase they have been uh, targeting of journalists journalists who wrote about the death of a farmer on january 26th who reported what the farmer's family had to say one organization has faced an fir others have been charged with sedition yeah others have been charged with sedition uh, on similar charges one journalist who was at one of the borders and was trying to investigate whether there was an attempt to provoke the protesters he was actually arrested on charges of obstruction for a particular period of time government officials and he was put in jail for a couple of days so there's been that kind of crackdown as well uh, legally against the protesters so there's been <clears throat> so there's been this uh, what do you call it? variety of tactics officially and unofficially by the ruling bjp so it's a mixture of legal intimidation there was a small attempt initially at negotiations but now it's full fledged uh, intimidation it's full fledged you know showing of might and then there's the informal so to speak dirty tricks department which has gone around conducting a massive propaganda wave against the farmers and their protests you say the community surrounding these these protests have been very supportive how representative is this movement of a wider force in society of resistance in india right so i would say that there are uh, that's actually a quite quite a difficult question because over the past years i would think that there have been very strong waves of opposition to this government and there are multiple axes on which this opposition is centered so one is the fact that uh, there has been a massive attack on livelihoods itself i mean during the during the lockdown the pandemic lockdown unemployment soared and even now uh, the number the unemployment numbers are somewhere in the range of what would be called around 10 crore people are jobless 10 crore would be let me see exactly how much would that be in numbers uh in 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 us terms yeah right so that would be around 100 million people are still 100 million youth mainly youth are still seeking jobs and there's been this massive the gdp of course has declined there is both unemployment and underemployment at a very massive level key sectors are still in crisis so economically there is <clears throat> of course a very very strong 
reason for resistance. And this is despite the fact that the government came promising, you know, a sea change, you know, promising more jobs, promising, you know, all these slogans of India becoming a beacon for the world. Now, a section of farmers, Vishwaguru, a teacher of the world. So, right. So there, that's one axis that has, uh, you know, led to a lot of opposition from farmers, from workers, of course, but also from the youth. So that's one very clear angle. The second one is the kind of religious polarization and violence that has been unleashed both overtly and covertly by uh, the right-wing ruling party and its regime. There's been this massive attempt to sort of, the word we use in India is communalize, which is probably not so much used in the West, but there's been this massive attempt at polarizing society much, much more further, you know, deepening various fault lines that exist around religion, for instance, creating this hatred against, this is an old project of the ruling BJP and its allies because they fundamentally believe that India is a Hindu country. So uh, there's been a huge amount of resistance across, again, across religion and castes and communities against this. That's definitely one axis. There's resistance against the fact that there's been an erosion of democracy because the electoral process has been further made more non-transparent. The kind of, uh, say, uh, domination the BJP has on the political system, the intimidation tactics it has used, there's been a lot of resistance to that. So at the political, social, economic issues of gender and caste violence, for instance, uh, you know, those are also a key aspect on which opposition has taken place. So I would say that these axes of resistance have been building for over the years, especially since 2004 gone around conducting a mass increase every single year. And uh, the BJP's and the ruling part, the government's response to most of this has just been posturing. It has been, you know, it has been this wounded pride. Uh, any attempted criticism is called an insult to the nation. So the classic example, of course, here is that a couple of days ago, Rihanna and Greta Thunberg tweeted about this. The fact that and the Indian government was stunned the Foreign Affairs Ministry the next day released a statement, uh, locked on the pandemic, locked on unemployed. This Twitter campaign by movie stars and cricket players, all of whom talked about India being united and India resisting propaganda. So there was this whole, you know, campaign done just because a couple of celebrities in the West has, had tweeted about, okay, there's a farmer's protest going on in India. So that was uh, that is the kind of seeking jobs, and there's been this this government has towards most of these protests. The instinct, first instinct, is to call them anti-national, search for foreign links, you know, brand them as terrorists, are still in crisis. So or you know, silence them in whatever way possible, put them to legal processes. So a lot of uh, opponents of this government are currently in jail, facing jobs cases, and uh, so that's so that's been the approach. So. Resistance has been building on all these counts. It is nonetheless a challenging process, I would say, because uh, the, uh, the BJP's success is built on these kind of polarizations. They have been doing this for a long time. It has worked to some extent. So polarization and violence has been a challenge. But a struggle like this is, I think, uh, interesting because it's not easy for the ruling party to actually you know, push some of these polarizations because there's a lot of cross-cultural, cross-state-wide, uh, state, cross-religious unity that comes out in protests like these. So that's where we are right now. And finally, Prasant, the Biden administration has stated 
it's supportive of these changes the Modi government was making to the agricultural sector. The State Department recently sent out a statement saying, quote, in general, the United States welcomes steps that would improve the efficiency of India's markets and attract greater private sector investment. Where does the United States fit into this picture? Against This is an old project. I think in the farmers movement, especially observers in the media have always been very clear that these laws are generally part of the IMF Washington consensus prescription and castes and communities against in the global south especially have been receiving for years. The uh, arguments are pretty simple. Deregulate your markets. Do not use subsidies despite the fact that the US gives humongous subsidies to its own farmers. Nonetheless, those rules don't apply clearly for other countries. So it's been deregulate your markets, scrap all subsidies, make sure that, uh, say, private sector players are able to enter in as much as possible. So I think what this kind of broadly... Uh, a, the aim here basically is broadly just to make sure that that old discredited ideology of the 90s, which is so-called free market and so-called free trade, which is uh, definitely nothing of which, which clearly the farmers in India are not benefiting from that. There are chronicled instances of how these kind of reforms have led to the collapse of uh, what you call agricultural production in many states, both commercial and food crops. So there's this whole history of that. But nonetheless, these reforms continue to be pushed. And I think that there's, <clears throat> sorry, I think there's never going to be any change in that ideology at all. So we see it more or less in terms of this uh, rhetoric, this discredited narrative, for us at least, discredited narrative of reforms being at the center of any kind of uh, progress. And of course, there are, you can draw connections in the sense that. U.S. capital, the capital in the U.S. and capital in India is increasingly collaborating. The same Mukesh Ambani we are talking about, who the farmers are protesting against, has also gotten investments from Google and Facebook. But those, I think, and the the links there are a bit more probably need to be studied a bit more. But our understanding is primarily this, and this has been reflected in the media as well because you have all these TV channels and newspapers talking about the reforms being like a great moment for Indian agriculture, you know, like this being this landmark, um, what do you call, uh, say, step, which is going to completely liberate the farmers. So all the, you know, slogans you heard over the past decades, which later turned out to be completely false, being repeated without any sense of irony here. I suspect what happened is nobody really, ex not many people expected the protests that broke out in November to continue this long and to be so huge. Because I, these uh, these being primarily a, a farmer-led issue, the protests were taking place in some states in the sidelines. Everyone was happy. But actually, the protesters came to Delhi. They sat for two months. And now a lot of these same commenters, uh, commentators are in a bit of a bind. So they're still going with the, the laws are good. And there should be some kind of compromise on them. But fundamentally, this is where we stand ideologically on that. And the international media is not really giving the movement the same attention it would if it were perhaps happening in a in another country. So I found that interesting as well. Prasanth Radhakrishnan, thank you so much for your time. Viewers and listeners can find your work on NewsClick concerning India. As you said, reporters have been following this strike daily at the organization. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much.